0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Dwayne Kennedy came up through Chicago, and he often found himself the only black guy in a comedy club full of white people. Recently, he's made a conscious decision to perform for more black crowds, That's something that a lot of comics, no matter what their ethnicity is, find daunting. I was
2: scared of that myself, you know? But then the thing is, black people vary, you know? And they're different, like everybody else, just different sensibilities, different points of view. But I think the black audience that a lot of people have in their heads is the one that they don't want to play to sometimes, you know? Uh Uh-oh. You know, they're going to, whatever is going to, you know, they they just imagine the worst. Just like sometimes the black people that people have in their heads is the the scariest one. Much scarier than any of the black people you actually encounter in the actual world. It's Bullseye.
1: Coming up, I'll talk to
2: Dwayne Kennedy about performing for all kinds of different audiences. And why he's not more famous. I didn't have seven habits of highly effective people. Yeah, I had the seven habits of highly ineffective people. <laughs> I was going to write that book, but that's one of my habits, procrastination.
1: Then later we'll talk to Noel Fielding. He made the British television show The Mighty Boosh. And in it, he created a world that helped viewers escape from the mundanity of everyday
3: life. It's the absolute opposite to the Kardashians. You know, it's like, that's my kryptonite. I'm fantasy Superman, and those kind of reality TV shows are my kryptonite. Plus,
1: Beyoncé's got a new single out. I'll tell you why it's worth your attention. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Dwayne Kennedy's what to call a comics comic sometimes. Well-kept secret, a cult favorite. He's the kind of guy that other comics sort of whisper about, and I've actually... Had this experience where somebody says, Hey, did you hear that Dwayne Kennedy's coming town? We got to go see Dwayne. He's done everything from Showtime at the Apollo to David Letterman. He's been working for about 30 years now, but he's never quite been famous.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> A couple of years ago, he came to our weekend festival, Max FunCon. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Dwayne, you can speak to this later after I play this clip. But um, I'm not sure that when he got there, he believed that all of those comedy nerds would think that he was funny. But when he stepped on stage, he blew the doors off their hinges. Here he is from Max Fun Con East in 2012 talking about uh, some of slavery's greatest hits. I
2: don't know what was happening back then. Them brothers was writing hits back then. <laughs> Swing low, what the... Sweet cherry, Yeah, that's a, see that song endures. People don't know that, man. People, a lot of people don't know those songs were like just coded messages, though, to the other slaves. You know, like Swing Low, Sweet Cherry it was like the Underground Railroad. You know, coming forward to carry us home, which was like Detroit or wherever you want to be dropped <laughs> off. People didn't know that, you know. They just thought it was a good song. Mass would ask me, hey, I have you seen that song yet. Uh, I'm why still working on it? Which is brilliant. You have to think that the cat that could write a song that could appeal to people on that many levels would be, have a brilliant mind. Because you know it's probably dudes that tried to write spirituals, but just wasn't that good at concealing the message. <laughs> and then Master asked me, hey, hey, hey Rassus, I hear you're working on the tune. Uh, what we'll you sing it for everybody? Well, ooh, I, ooh, I don't know. It's, I'm still working on it, man. Oh, no, come on, sing it. Well, okay. Well, okay, okay. <coughs> well, I'm still okay.
0: <laughs> oh, <coughs> oh, oh!
2: Tonight at eight thirty, gonna get some shovels and bash white folks in the
4: head.
2: What time? 8.30. (laughs) And thus ended his songwriting career.
1: Dwayne's new album is called Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. Uh, Incredibly, it is his
2: first album. Mm -hmm. Dwayne, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me, man. And, uh, wow. That was, uh, huh. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, I've heard, over the years, I've heard that you are somebody who has recorded many albums and just not released any of them.
2: Yeah, I recorded a bunch of stuff and just wasn't happy with it. Or, you know, sometimes you're not happy with it, and then sometimes it's just the recording, you know, just doesn't go right. You know, like, oh, man, I could have swore it was people at that show. <laughs> and you listen to it. But, um, yeah, so... But most times, I just I just wasn't happy with it.
1: Why weren't you happy with it?
2: Mm, you know, man, you just get compulsive. And then you think, oh, this bit could have been better. Or, you know, it's it's months later. And it's like, oh, I could have added this, you know. So you just, uh, what is it? You let the perfect be the enemy of the good, you know. So I just wouldn't release it. Um, and <laughs> funny part is, is that what I have released, some people might say, man, brother... You know, all those years and you decided on this, (laughs) you might as well have released all that other stuff. But, you know, I just decided, man, I just got to do something. Let something go. Let it go.
1: Well, let's hear some of Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. My guest is the stand-up comic Dwayne Kennedy. Um, How about this? Let's let's talk about Dwayne's uh, solution for racism.
2: Yeah. I think the only thing that gives me hope about the end of racism is the uh, depletion of the ozone layer. (laughs) Right? Because the ozone layer depletes and then ultraviolet rays come down and then there's burn up white folks like vampires. (laughs) (laughs) That's why every morning I'm I'm out on the front porch with some hairspray. you're doing that you'll find out
1: i feel like i accidentally i really did not plan to like front load this with white people killing jokes
2: (laughs) Ah, for the holidays (laughs) kill caucasians for the holidays (laughs) but the the idea of the bit like i said it's it's a, a longer bit but it involves uh what actually is forcing integration, and that's the depletion of the ozone layer. And the fact that you're seeing more, like you're seeing now, you're seeing more white men with black women. And I think that is due to the fact that uh, because UV ray light is coming down and um, causing white men to at least try to get their kids inside under that melanin umbrella. (laughs) You know, you also have a pretty compelling
1: technology pitch for a a reverse suntan machine.
2: Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, A whitening booth. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Because white folks have tanning booths. It'd be cool if black people had whitening booths. Where you just go in and get a little whiter. Right. It's like yeah yeah. yeah. Turn it up to ten. I'm trying to get a job. Right. Or turn it up to twelve because I want to be supervisor. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I forgot about that bit. That's right, Jess. Thanks, man. What else do I do? (laughs) It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse
1: Thorne. I'm talking to Dwayne Kennedy. He's been doing stand-up comedy for about 30 years, but he's just released his first stand-up album. It's called Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. When you started doing comedy in Mm -hmm. Chicago, where you're from, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what kind of audiences were you doing it for?
2: The racial makeup of the audiences were predominantly white. And I think that's because I had been socialized in that way. In a sense, I grew up in Chicago, and we grew up in—I grew up in uh, predominantly black neighborhoods at first. But what would happen was, when I was a kid, the last neighborhood I moved into lived in in Chicago itself, in Chicago proper. The neighborhood was white, and then I'd go away on vacation, and when I'd come back, there'd be fewer white folks there. And it would become more and more black, you know. All you know, white flight—that's what it was. You know, you you know what it is now. But so, so I lived in Chicago, and then I, moved, we, my parents divorced, and uh, moved out to the south suburbs, which was like, man, it was like ninety-nine, like the school was ninety-nine percent white. Everything was white. So, I I knew in some sense, like I was attuned to that sensibility. I knew what made white folks laugh. I'm not saying I didn't know what made black folks laugh, but I guess a lot of my comedy was based on being the other or being the outsider. And some of it was, I realize now, man, even just in my social interaction, sometimes you you make a joke to a white person, a a joke about race, not just to make them laugh, you know, which is a way to disarm people and put people at ease about you, put yourself at ease about them, but it's also a barometer to see what you're laughing at to see to get a gauge of you you know if you know if you say something and sometimes you'll say something that you know is kind of messed up, you know, just to see how what this person's reaction will be. oh, how could you oh okay, you have a a modicum of decency about you rather than. Oh, that's hilarious, man! Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so I was I was just used to that. So I and then I didn't know of any when I started. I'm sure there was obviously there were black clubs that were predominantly black because this is Chicago. Chicago's very segregated. I mean, less so now than it used to be, and, it, and it's still real segregated now. But so there were like black parts of town, white parts of town, black club, white. You know, we identify things like that. We still do. My father still. To this day, man, and I do it I guess subconsciously, but anything that ever happens anywhere involving people, first thing my father asked, was well, black was black or white. Was black or white? Who was it? Black or white. Doesn't matter what it is, you know. And forget the incident, you know. Aliens landed. Well they're black or white, black or white aliens. So um so I, I went to a comedy club, Zany's Comedy Club, which was up on the north side of Chicago, which was a predominantly white area, you know. So yeah, that's what I so. So my audiences, I was attuned to that sensibility, but now I'm actually trying. I mean, I've I've done black clubs or predominantly black audiences, and I like that, and I want to do more of that. My ideal audience is a mixed audience, I believe racially, I guess economically, uh, what just social strata, whatever it might be. You know, I think that's a that's a cool house because then you can address different things to different people and then that laughter can be uh, contagious. Same, things that maybe be a, a, a more, what, homogenous audience might not laugh at or because they don't feel comfortable if they see somebody else laughing, and it, you know, puts them at ease. So because um, so this EP that I recorded, I did it in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the audience was 99% black. There was a few white folks there, you know, but uh, predominantly black. And I, I like that, man. I'm trying to – I want to I wanna be inclusive. I don't mean to say I don't want – but you can't – I don't think you can just be a black artist and not do it for black people as well, you know. And I'm – I don't want to be – I don't want to do that only black in the room comedy. You know what I mean i don't wanna I don't wanna be that you know i've I've been that and it's fine I still even do shows like I did a show a few weeks ago in uh Woodburn Indiana brother and uh you know not only was I the only black in the room, I was the only person from the two thousands there and everybody else <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, but it was fine you know it' I, mean? so I got i got I got jokes for them, you know what I mean, but I'm trying to just move out of that you know.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the comedian Dwayne Kennedy. You might have seen him on Totally Biased, David Letterman, Conan, Comedy Central, or a million other places. His new stand-up special is, Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. I think a lot of comics, especially comics who are starting out, whether they're white or black, Mm -hmm. are... Or Or Latino.
2: Or Latino. Or whatever, Uh, Asian,
1: South Asian. There's a broad variety of ethnicities available to young Americans today. Yes. Um... But no matter what people's uh, race is, I think a lot of young comics are scared to play black rooms uh, mm-hmm. because there is because there's just a different set of cultural expectations. Right.
2: Um, I was I was scared of that myself. You know, because because but then the thing is, it's not a monolithic thing. It, you know, black black people vary. You know, and they're diff they have like everybody else, just different sensibilities, different points of view. But the I think the 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 black audience that a lot of people have in their heads is the one that they don't want to play to sometimes, you know. Uh oh, you know, they're gonna whatever is gonna, you know, they, they just imagine the worst, just like sometimes the black people that people have in their heads is the is the scariest one, it's much scarier than any of the black people you actually encounter in the actual world, you know, but I didn't mean to cut you off. I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: No, I, I was literally about to ask you whether, um, you know, when you're doing, when you're a young guy and you're doing your sets at Zanies or whatever, mm-hmm. um, whether it, took something for you to say like i am good enough and strong enough and maybe like bold enough Mm -hmm. to do quote-unquote
2: black comedy rooms um i did them i just like i said occasionally and but and the thing is most times it was fine you know really just just in the same sense there's times I did rooms in front of mostly white folks, and it didn't go well. But that didn't stop me from doing those, to continue to do those. So I think to myself, well, why didn't I pursue or continue to do more regularly black rooms, you know? So I think, again, even the black person in my own head sometimes was daunting, you know. And certainly there are those rooms. And and there's some white rooms like that as well. But there's certainly rooms that involve a, a large number of black folks that are just certain black acts don't do, or they don't do well there. They have certain expectations. And and they're going to let you know if you're not meeting them. They're going to be quite, you know, vociferous about that and quite adamant. So there is that room. There is that room. But that's not the only room. Um, Bernie Mac used to, uh, when he was, you know, at the height and he was, uh, when he would be in town, he had a room that he did on Tuesdays, Miltrineers, this place in Chicago, downtown Chicago. Bernie cultivated the type of audience that he wanted. He would tell him at the start, listen, you know, it was predominantly black audiences. He said, no heckling, you know, you expect the acts, boom. And you winnow out and you glean out all the folks who aren't there for the show or who are there. They want to make themselves a part of the show. I did that spot like three or four times. It was always, it got better and better. It was fine. It was fun. It was great, you know, because I think I like any group of people. I mean, there's, there's things, you know, was that, that, uh, you know, that shared experience or cultural shorthand or whatever you want to call it, you know, just different sensibilities. You know, black folks would get some things, that maybe black white folks don't get, or they'll get it in a different way that white folks get. Like I, I tell you, this is I'm, I'm kind of digressing, but there's a bit that I do that that I have on this EP about slavery. You know, by slaves or slavery was still legal. And the first time I did, I think it went it went all right, and then I did a few more times, and again because predominantly white crowds. They got all, you know. I don't know if I should laugh. Whatever it might be, and and I don't, and then sometimes I don't want to be so so arrogant as to think people just they didn't laugh because they didn't know how to receive something. Like, they yeah, I get it. I don't think it's funny. Whatever. But the crowds that that bit does the best with are black people and southern white folks. I did it in North Carolina, white folks loved it. But I yeah, there's there's some parts of that where you know that people. Yeah, will understand what you mean. They will. They will not just understand it in their heads. Viscerally, they understand it. You know, they feel it. You know that expression. You feel me? Yeah. You, I, they feel you. You know, and uh, so I, I like that. Can I, you, Can you give
1: me an example?
2: When I go into that bit about slavery, and I and I and usually I, I, when I've done it in front of white folks. I would say, I'm glad slavery's over, and okay, they are waiting for a bit. But when I said there, and I'm just so in the habit of saying that, and uh, and I and I led into it. I'm glad slavery's over, and in the audience, the black on, like, yeah, who says it's over? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. That's true. Right, because they know what that means. I mean, they. I, I know what they mean. The legacy is still here. But when you tell the white, people, yeah, yeah, it's over. Yeah, you're right. What's next? You know, mission accomplished. <laughs> you know, so it's it is it, that's they it's another level of understanding, and they they, they just bring something else to that. So they're they're bringing something else to what you're saying, and consequently, you then find things within yourself that they are there that they may be dormant because of who you might be playing to, yeah.
1: I'll finish up my conversation with comedian Dwayne Kennedy after a break. We'll talk about why he thinks he hasn't yet found the success that his peers all expected of him. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, businesses can avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. You'll even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a four-week trial and special offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in Bullseye. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. StoryCorps travels the country collecting the wit, wisdom, and poetry in the stories of everyday people. The StoryCorps podcast showcases these unscripted stories about real life. Listen in and discover meaning in the words of someone you might not notice walking down the street. Find the StoryCorps podcast now at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the comedian and writer Dwayne Kennedy, whose new album of stand-up is called Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. I don't know if I know a comic uh, who doesn't admire you and your work, Dwayne. Um, but often when your name comes up, people are like, yeah, it seems like Dwayne will do a couple things that, you know, that raise his profile and they'll just disappear for a while. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, that's uh that's true. Uh that's going on as we speak, Jess. <laughs> I started to cancel this interview. <laughs> um you know what, man? I've always like a lot of people, of course, you know, shy, whatever. Self-effacing. Um enough ego to get on a stage enough ego certainly to want to try to you know be good but not in the way not the type of ego that i i need i need enough validation whatever it is from the audience but it doesn't have to be to the point where i have to what not aggrandize myself but cuz I don't know I you know what it is maybe it's complacency I don't know what it is like I'm easily satisfied I don't know like having a good show is cool with me Hey, I had a good show some months ago that's fine but doing the things that aren't necessarily conducive to ascending in show business to ascending to heights of fame and 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 fearing it fearing those things really in one sense, uh, I don't know if this was a fear of failure. Also, there's a the fear of success. I guess they want. I don't know, People say they wanted to say I don't know. And when I first started doing stand up, my goal was if I can get on television once, if I can do stand up on TV once, then I will have validated in my mind that I was a good stand up. And then beyond that, I didn't I didn't really have a plan. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I was never good at the all the ancillary things that it really, that it takes to make it in showbiz, I mean, really make it, other than just, you know, if you've got whatever degree of talent you've got, that's one thing. But all the other stuff, th- the, the, the offstage, the, the glad-handing and the schmoozing and the this and the that. And I used to think, man, look at these. When I would see cats doing that offstage, stage like, look at these sellout, you know, but... They were building relationships, then you realize that's what a lot of show business is, man, it's relationships. if you want to ascend, I'd see cats who i didn't never I never thought they were all that funny, but you know whatever I mean fine, but they knew how to work a room off stage, and next thing you know, you'd see that person who you thought wasn't all that funny on t v Doing stand up. They're like, well, all right, that's fine. I mean, I don't begrudge anybody. May everybody get whatever they want. But then you see him on T V again. Like, wait a minute. Didn't everybody see the first appearance on T V? Then you see him on again and then again and then, you know, and this and that and So But then but then I realized if if I'm in it, then I, I need to be in it and try to get whatever, whatever I can get out of it, man. I mean, I've been in it too long. And I mean, I've I've had shows and, you know, people like me and that's cool. But now I got to get a couple of bucks. I didn't have what what you call, you know, there was that seven habits of highly effective people. Yeah. I had the seven habits of highly unaffected, ineffective people. (laughs) Yeah, I could write that book. I was gonna write that book, but that's one of my habits. Procrastination. <laughs> procrastination.
1: Yeah. Social isolation.
2: Right, right, right. So I would I would like I'd go on stage, do some shows, stop doing comedy, stop I would not I wouldn't I wouldn't be regular about it. I'd dr- I'd stop doing it completely, then I'd get back into it and you know, and you realize, oh man, that that's not helping you advance at all.
1: I wonder if there's part of it that's like related. Do you never Putting out a record and never being happy with your
2: record, which is like yeah, you know, I think a lot of it's just I don't know if I felt like I deserved anything, you know. I think I think that had been that's more more it. Wow, this bunker really makes you face yourself. Uh, <laughs> Woo, yeah, I, I think a lot of it, just, I just don't felt I really deserved. I was not worthy, but I was not deserving of. What it was I might be able to achieve or accomplish, or whatever accolades, yeah, I just some some to some degree, I felt that I didn't deserve things stuff do so you did you use the past tense to
1: feel that way now
2: You know what, I do, but now I feel like nobody deserves anything, so why not me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've expanded my uh, view and applied it to everybody. Yeah. Who really deserves anything? Nobody. Okay. Well, if nobody deserves anything, I might as well get some too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Dwayne, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you.
2: Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me, man.
1: Dwayne Kennedy, uh, his new album is called Oh No, It's Dwayne Kennedy. You can find him online just barely.
2: (laughs) I'm stepping that up, though, brother. I'm going, woo, I'm going to be a presence. Okay. Yeah. I believe you. Not today, but woo, it's coming.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm handing over interview duties for this next guest to our producer, Julia Smith.
0: The British comedian Noel Fielding's work is not workaday stuff. The Mighty Boosh and his other comedy and art are populated by things like talking manta rays, kites and mountains, the spirit of jazz in sort of human form, characters who are often knoll in face paint and wigs or seaweed with names like Old Greg Ice Cream Eyes and Sergeant Raymond Boombox. Noel creates colorful, psychedelic worlds where really anything could happen, And his own reassuring warmth and friendliness makes you think that it might be okay to take his hand and come on in instead of, you know, maybe falling down a nightmare hole. Uh, In the U.S., cult comedy fans probably know him best from the Mighty Boosh TV show, which aired here on BBC America and Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Uh, But overseas, they've played uh, sold-out arena tours. Noel has been a popular quiz show panelist, and he was even called up to perform with Monty Python at one of their reunion shows a few years ago. Noel is doing a U.S. tour of his show An Evening with Noel Fielding, which is kind of a variety comedy show, this spring. Here's a little bit of a scene from The Mighty Boosh featuring Noel as Vince Noir and his comedy partner Julian Barrett as Howard Moon. Vince is going through a goth phase and he's invited some goth girls over to hang out.
4: Don't think Horace is going to be able to make it tonight, so I'm freed up. What time girls come yeah, the girls coming? Yeah, thing is, these are goth girls, so there might be a bit of a problem. Why? Well, you're going to have to get a bit dark, like me. Like you, you're the least dark person I've ever met. You're like candy floss. You cut me open. I'm made of blackjacks. You're fruit salad, Vince. Everyone knows that. It's not Vince. I've changed my name. What? It's Obsidian now. Obsidian? Yeah, Obsidian Blackbird McKnight. Whatever. Inside, I'm darker than you, yeah? There's a dark poetry to me, yes, sir. Yeah, well, you can blag all that internal stuff. I'm talking about the look, you know? I mean, what are we going to do with your hair? What's wrong with it? It's a bit thin, isn't it? It's not thin. It's fine. You're not joking can't even feel it. It's like brown smoke. <laughs> Look, my hair is soft and gentle. I get a lot of compliments about it. Girls like it. Yeah, not golf girls, though. Oh, what am I gonna do, then? Can you help me out? I don't know. You must have something to boost it up. Come on, you've got to be National in hair design. All right. Look, lucky for you, there's this. Goth juice. The most powerful hairspray known to man. Made from
3: the tears of Robert Smith.
0: Norfielding, Fielding, welcome oh. to Bullseye.
3: I haven't heard that for years. Really? No, but I was talking to Julian this morning, so it's nice to hear his voice. Oh. He's got a good voice for radio, actually.
0: He's got a great voice for dark, radio. dark, brown,
3: jazzy corduroy voice. Yeah. Yeah, it's tweed, isn't it? Gentle. <laughs> Warm. <laughs> like, you could bathe in his voice. I haven't heard that for a very long time, um... Yeah. Weird, that was from the TV show, right? Mm-hmm. Because we did do a radio show, so there would have been much more uh, sound effects and soundscapes and stuff because we produced it all ourselves um, and then just delivered it to the BBC. Uh, we said, there you go, we've made it. And they went, what? We haven't recorded it? Went, yeah, we built our own studio and recorded it and produced it ourselves <laughs> and just handed it, left it on the desk and then got out of there.
0: I want to ask you more about creating the TV show. But first, maybe, so For we played a clip, but for people who... Haven't seen it? Can you describe what
3: in one word, in a sound?
0: <laughs> let's do a sound. Let's do a word. Let's do a sentence. Saka, saka,
3: saka. <laughs> let's do a noise poem. Uh, it's difficult. I mean, I guess the, really, the bush at the heart of it was a double act. You know, it was uh, Lauren Hardy and it was Abbott and Costello. You know, it was it was just a it was with Nail and I. It was a double act. That was the strong point That was the thing that everything else was. You know, we we hung everything else on the double act. The double acts was was strong, and it reminded people of their the way they spoke with their friends, and um, we needed each other, but we were complete opposites. And then, basically, we're normal dudes. We're just normal men, and we would have a job that we didn't really like. And I thought I was going to be in a band, even though I couldn't sing. But I looked like I should be in a band, and he sort of felt like he was going to be a writer or, you know, a jazz trumpet player, that <laughs> he never was. Um, we were stuck together, and we were stuck in our jobs. Um, and then we used to go on these crazy adventures. So it was quite like Lewis Carroll, or C.S. Lewis, you know. Um, we'd always go through a portal or some place somehow to a magical land, and usually it was a quest scenario. We'd have to get something, or we'd meet someone that was good, and then we'd meet someone that was evil. Um, so there's a bit of Star Wars in there, <laughs> good versus evil. And the person that I'd befriend would usually help us defeat the monster, of the the villain of the piece. So it was quite classic storytelling, really. The things that we were obsessed with were, you know, Clash of the Titans and Sinbad and Voyages and those old sort of myths and stories, you know. Um, But we tried to put them in a sort of modern day setting. And then we would get sucked into these kind of strange adventures and meet these weird people. But I guess that's probably the the best thing that we ever did. Really, we sort of it was a long evolution. The Boosh. it sort of we did live. We did a radio show. We did TV shows. We did a festival. We did a book. We were together fifteen years. You know, and we were young. We just lived in a studio. We worked till midnight every night. We worked Saturdays, Sundays. We loved it. We were obsessed. It's like we're marriage. You know, we were in love as a comedy love. So it was difficult because when we stopped doing the Boosh for one, I had to do a different show. I only really had. A year to make it, you know. Whereas the bush gently and slowly evolved, and we just kept adding bits and pieces to it, you know, like a big, massive patchwork moose.
0: <laughs> what? Just
3: making myself laugh. <laughs> patchwork moose. Surely that's what this yeah. interview should be called. Uh-huh. The patchwork moose. Noel Fielding's patchwork moose.
1: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is our producer Julia Smith's interview with British comedian Noel Fielding. He's best known for his T V show The Mighty Boosh. He's touring the States starting in March with his live show, An Evening with Noel Fielding.
0: I wanted to talk since we're on the sort of friendship uh, of you and Julian and of Vincent Howard about crimping. Um I have a crimp <laughs> to play. Crimping. Um I'll just let's just play just a do crimp.
3: It. Smash it out.
4: Oh, 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 I did a twisty. Oh, 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 a tiny twisty. Twist him up, twist him down, twist him all around like the cobra. Dancing to the music of the pipe, the pipe, the pipe, the pipe of life. Aye, 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 Call a cinema in the night. Such a good thing, don't forget to bring popcorn, Tony and his paper castle.
3: <laughs> wow.
0: Uh, yeah. What... What is a crimp? What where it, does it come from? I don't really
3: know. It's like folk rapping. I <laughs> don't know what it is like nursery rhyme, folk rapping. Do you know what it came from? It came from uh the first time we ever did it we did it in a dialogue. We used to do these kind of zingy musical dialogues when we were on stage, you know, we'd have a talk about a polar bear, you know, or the Arctic. You don't know about the Arctic, Vince. You know, there's the polar bear out there. He's all right, and he? No, he's not all right. He's a dangerous killer. Really? Yeah. Do you know how he hunts? He covers his nose. Yeah? You don't see him until he's on top of you. Whoa! What about his eyes? He keeps them shut. What about his pink flabby behind? (laughs) Keeps it concealed in a white handbag. (laughs) Like we'd have these weird, slightly improvised dialogues and then occasionally we'd break into a song, a tiny little musical bit. We had one about a llama. Calm a llama down, calm a llama deep down in the ocean blue. Like a... I can't even remember it. Like a... Oh, I don't know. Sitting in the tight place, laughing like a monkey. We do these weird little things, and on live on stage, that they, they used to blow the absolute roof off. It was so bizarre. And then the more you did them, you just do them every now and then. But the more in tune they were, the more tight they were, the more uh, the more intricate they got the more the audience would go nuts and we just thought what are these they're like little secret weapons they're amazing (laughs) we just burst into a crimp and then you know you get a round of applause definitely which is in dublack stuff you know they were like our little hand grenades so i don't really know what they were i always felt like julian thought they were a bit ridiculous because he's a proper musician and he found them a bit annoying not annoying, but I think he just thought these are re- these are rather silly, <laughs> in the words of Graham Chapman. These are a bit silly. But I used to like, also, when we were very tired, we used to sort of make them up when we were really, you know, when you're so tired, you're hungover that you're a bit hallucinating, and you just, so you sort of have a bit like, "Karma Lama down, Karma Lama deep down in the ocean blue. And it was quite funny because we did one. Called Captain Cabinets, Trapped in Cabinets. Will he get out? Can he get out? Of he will, Captain Cabinets, Trapped in Cabinets. Will he get out? Can he get out? Of he will. And Mark Ronson <laughs> wanted to do a, a song of this and produce it. And I think Julian was a little bit furious about that because all this amazing music that Julian had written and the thing that Mark Ronson wanted to produce was Captain Cabinets, which I was very pleased about. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Cabinets, Captain Cabinets. Where'd he get out? Can he get out? Of course he will.
1: <laughs> We'll hear the rest of our producer Julia Smith's conversation with Noel Fielding after a break. They'll talk about the creative struggles Fielding went through trying to move on after the bush. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO Now the new way to stream all of HBO with no TV package required. Get all the series, movies, docs, sports specials, and more. Download the HBO Now app on your favorite device to start your 30-day free trial instantly. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. StoryCorps travels the country collecting the wit, wisdom, and poetry in the stories of everyday people. The StoryCorps podcast showcases these unscripted stories about real life. Listen in and discover meaning in the words of someone you might not notice walking down the street. Find the StoryCorps podcast now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing our producer Julia Smith's interview with the comedian, writer and artist Noel Fielding.
0: I meant to ask you this at the top because I felt like it would be important for people to know i am talking about the aesthetics of your shows and yeah. art uh what what you look like and uh what how would I you like? how would you describe what you look like
3: Wow, I've got quite a frightening face <laughs> um what do I look like? I sort of—I don't know, really. It's hard to describe what I look like, really. I've got quite a striking face. Um, I look like as Dylan. Do you know Dylan Moran, the uh-huh. comedian? He said, "No, you look like about twenty-five people all from the sixties. I can't remember any of them at the moment." <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so you know those men from the sixties. <laughs> Yeah, the ones with the faces, <laughs> that's what he said. hes a, I sort of do dress quite weirdly. Um, I mean, in the bush I was a bit younger and I was a bit skinnier, so I had lots of hair, I've got a lot of hair. So um, we always used to sort of do jokes about how androgynous I was, you know. And I sort of called myself the confuser. Oh, it's the confuser. Is it a man? Is it a woman? I'm not sure I care. Sort of. I used to wear a glitter ball cat suit in the bush, but... Those days are gone. <laughs> I'm not getting into a glitter ball cat suit these days. But you have to but have I not mean, not an ounce of fat on you to do that. I mean, but you're
0: still you have a very uh, you're known for your style. I well, mean, I went, what, I went, like tell me what you're wearing today. Well, I've been
3: in bands and I went to art school, so I'm a bit of a fashionista. But I don't. Uh, what am I wearing today? Uh, I don't. I've got like a black drain pipe. So I always wear drain pipes. I mean, you know,
0: these are these are uh, like yeah. skinny pants. Yes,
3: and I've got these quite high boots on. As a chav in England once said, oh, my gosh, that is a lady's shoes. <laughs> so um, <laughs> they're like sort of devil's hooves. And then I've got a shirt. I don't know what this shirt is, but it's quite nice. I got it from a shop in East London. And I've got a really big, fluffy red coat that I'm wearing I saw the pictures moment. of that. You've been wearing it on this trip, I think. Gold said, yeah, you look like you've skinned Elmo. It's quite it's quite luxurious, that coat. There. It's very warm.
0: I wanted to ask you why you choose to dress the way that you do because, uh, I mean, a lot of I people, know. I mean, and I guess you're especially I was... in the UK, you're a, you're a pretty well-known person. You don't dress to a... detract.
3: No, I'm a bit of a dandy, really. I always, I dress like this all the time. I mean, if you see me in the shop, I'll be dressed like this. I don't sort of go out in tracksuit bottoms and ug boots, you know, like actors do which I always find laughable, um, you see a really cool actor, really handsome, or you know, really beautiful, and then they're really amazing as a character. And then you see them in Starbucks, dressed in the worst clothes you've ever seen in your life, with a massive coffee and Ugg boots on and baggy grey sweatpants. And I just think, ah, sort of horrifies me. <laughs> Sorry, if that's you, you know who you are.
0: It's interesting that you say that because... In your work, it seems like the visual aspects of it have been, I don't know in what, in what how important as compared to the comedic aspects, but it seems like they're both very important to you.
3: Yeah, aesthetically. I'm a bit of an aesthetic snob, really. I mean, I love the way things look, and I'm slightly OCD about that, and I paint as well. So um, I went to art school, you know, it's what I thought, i wanted to do and my stand-ups kind of like paintings but just with words and the bush was great for me because it meant i could express all of that stuff in costumes and makeup and animation and stuff and then luxury was really just an experimental kind of explosion of just whatever was happening (laughs) in my head at that point um and maybe, you know, it was too concentrated and it was quite sort of. I mean, I can't even watch more than two of those in a row. It's just too much. It's like, oh, it's too many styles. There's too much going on. It's like, but you know, that was the point. We wanted to do that so that when you saw it, you went, what's this? And it sort of. The people that loved it absolutely loved it. And the people that hated it absolutely hated it. It was. I've never made anything that split people in half so much. Some people were just furious. At how dare you make that and other people are like oh, this is my life
0: <laughs> well you're t- you're so you're talking about luxury comedy which is <laughs> yeah. the, the show that you made a couple of years ago the timeline is a little different because obviously yeah. after the we bush. didn't we didn't have it what didn't air here no i watched it online
3: yes it's on seesaw. is that a thing? Seesaw. Seesaw. Oh, I think Ho, that's new. Ho, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Yee-haw. I don't Yeehaw. know, there's some yeah. words. Yeah. It's on
3: CISO, whatever that is. Um, uh,
0: but, um
3: now you can it's available on seesaw. <laughs> I don't know what seesaw is. <laughs> I wish I did.
0: Well, luxury comedy is really I personally I really enjoy it. I Yeah. Uh and Thank you. It's even less restrained than yeah. the Mighty Boosh TV show was. Well, it
3: sort of doesn't, it's not really, you can't really compare the two things. The Boosh was about a double act and it was set in real life, even though it was a warped real life. And then we would go to adventure. So it was the traditional, you know, it was the wardrobe in Narnia. It was the, you know, the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. It was that kind of questy sort of portal thing two normal guys in the real world going on adventures whereas luxury you know i was living in an animated forest in a tree house and my butler was an anteater and andy warhol lived in my house the first
0: the first yeah, series and then I mean, the second one there's is, some you know, elements
3: of there's some elements of sitcom but then it's quite sketchy so we just wanted it to be a kind of punk weird insane visual feast really so maybe we paid more attention to how it looked, or as much attention to how it looked and and the styles of animation and, um, and the aesthetic of it than, you know, as much as we did with the writing, you know? But I think maybe the visuals are slightly too powerful and they knock the writing back. That was the only problem with it. So sometimes you don't see the jokes because you're just trying to take in too much. And I dig that some people haven't got the energy or the time to do that. I think it's why a lot of young kids like it and students, because... They get a bit more obsessive about television and things, don't they, or films or music, you know, because they're not so involved in real life yet, you know, in serious relationships or children or jobs. You know, they have a bit more time to explore their fantasy (laughs) (laughs) side, which is weird because I keep making these shows that youngsters are into and I keep getting older and my audience keeps sort of staying roughly the same age. So it's like a weird science fiction film. (laughs) <laughs> Where I'm like 90 and they're all 21 still going, No, <laughs> we love the way you dress. And I'm like, I'm 80. I can't keep wearing these boots. My hips are crumbling. <laughs> I'm like, Peter Pan. It's a nightmare.
0: But I mean, no, it's this a is a, it. It, it seems like that is important to you, like keeping that the fantasy sense yeah. and the
3: glamour. Yeah, I think it's good. Julian was like that. Julian always wanted there to be a sort of enigmatic streak in the bush, you know, that you couldn't ever really know what we were about, and I think that's good. I don't. I think modern celebrities changed everything. Everyone wants to know everything about everyone, you know? I mean, the Bushes couldn't be... It's the absolute opposite to the Kardashians, you know? It's like... So modern celebrities want to, you to see them just on mobile phones arguing with their publicists in horrible grey tracksuit bottoms. That world is so revolting to me that I can't think of anything worse than people seeing me sort of going to a photo shoot in grey tracksuit bottoms with a small dog in a bag on a mobile phone moaning about nothing and with a giant Starbucks coffee as big as my own head. Do you know what I mean? It's like that. It's so real. The reality of that horrifies me. Like I'm always trying to make a world that you can escape into or something fantastical. And the beauty of those places, I'm a romantic really. I love the romance of those places and... You know, I want to disappear into romantic, beautiful Rousseau paintings, you know. I don't necessarily want to watch an hour-long show about how a porn shop is run. <laughs> For me, that's my kryptonite. <laughs> I'm fantasy Superman. And those kind of reality TV shows are my kryptonite. So I'm always trying to make something like the Boucher Luxury that is... Uh, an alternative universe but it takes a long time to build a world you know that, because the world's amazing so to try and build a slightly different version of that world takes a long time it's hard to get right the idea for luxury was to make a moving painting you know the guy that i did it with we were at art college together so that was the zone
0: so much of your work is about the fantasy and the escapism and i wonder is it at all a response to you evolving as a person and getting older, and there's parts in your, I mean, your new show has, there's sort of like a cliche, like, hey, getting older, past 40. And so you're sort of acknowledging this kind of, like, shift. But um, is it, I mean, is it scary to you? How does that feel to you?
3: I think I've come to terms with the fact that I'll always be interested in fantasy and make-believe and surreal otherworldly kind of places it's just what I'm into you know it's just what I do um yeah there's a real life is a bit frightening for me like mortgages and children but then actually maybe with children a lot of my friends having children now and you know I'm getting to a point where you know if I have children I think maybe then you create fantasy worlds for them so in another way it's sort of because kids love that stuff so it's quite it enables you to sort of be able to do that again you know um what i'm really retreating from i'll be honest with you is (laughs) the world the state of the world you know i can't really watch the news too much because it just is too it's too much you know it's it's (laughs) you know whatever it is that you're reading about and if you get engrossed in the news and you get you build up a resilience to it you become slightly hardened to it you know and there's a lot of bad stuff that's going on and you know like say something like the Paris shootings you know were so horrific and so you know it's it's difficult to be faced with that kind of stuff every day you know and there's a lot of stuff bad stuff going on in, in the world and maybe um, I've never been very good at coping with the darkness, the real darkness of the world, you know, the, the fact that we're ruining the planet and that there's terrorists and that people are getting killed and that there's refugees stuck in Calais and all this stuff, you know, that's a disease, whatever it is <laughs> that's happening. I've never been very good at dealing with that. And if I... Get involved in it and start watching the news a lot. I get really involved in it. You know, I'm quite sensitive, so I find, I think I can't do so- I've got to do something. You know, I've got. To, uh, this is ridiculous, but my girlfriend runs a, a sort of charity where she helps refugees and stuff, and it's amazing what she does. But that she's really good at that, and she's quite strong. And I think I worked out that I probably wasn't wouldn't be the best place for me trying to do that. What would be best for me is to try and make silly fantasy worlds and have people laugh and escape for a half an hour, and that would be my way of helping. I'm not a very serious person either. I like to muck about all the time and talk rubbish. This is the most serious I've ever been in my life. You've made me completely serious. <laughs> I feel like I'm in therapy. <laughs> Do you know, what? I had therapy for a while, and uh, my therapist said, the thing about you is the door to your subconscious is always open. You haven't got a handle or a lock for it. It's just to always open. There's stuff coming out. Uh, I'm not a real person.
0: Well, Noel Fielding, thank you so much for being thank with you. us on Bullseye. This was really fun.
1: Noel Fielding, talking with our producer, Julia Smith. You can find Noel's TV show, The Mighty Boosh, on com, and his U.S. tour starts March 10th. Find out if he's stopping somewhere near you at noelfielding.co.uk. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. So here's a question. What's so scary about Beyoncé's new video?
2: What happened at the New Orleans?
1: You'd think, honestly, from the tenor of the negative reactions that it was about destroying the social order. Like that time Michael Jackson messed up that car with a crowbar. But it doesn't actually take all that stuff to upset people and it isn't any of that it's a song and a video that is about the simplest plainest theme that has been running through hip hop for 40 years this is who I am I matter we matter or you could put it another way black lives matter and that's not a threat unless you choose to see it as one
4: Swag. Ooh, yeah, baby.
1: Beyonce oh, yeah. describes herself in the song in these archaic, bass terms, but she does it defiantly. I am this, I am human, and I am spectacular. In the video, as we cut between scenes, we see this churning mix of worlds. We see Beyonce and a breathtakingly beautiful cohort of black men and women dancing in a world of kind of slightly broken-down splendor, something like the antebellum South reimagined without the slave owners. We see the Gulf Coast after the storm. A squad dances in a dry swimming pool. Beyoncé, lying on a New Orleans police car, slips under the water. Her daughter and two friends look us squarely in the eye. Lots of black people look us squarely in the eye. Many of these scenes are suffused with pain... But they're all suffused with hope. I mean, this thing, it's not some socialist call to arms. The lyrics are practically Calvinist. It's all working hard and succeeding. Bill Gates is referenced repeatedly. But white people, especially white dudes like me, are still kind of shook. They're choosing to be. Here's what's amazing to me. The song is called Formation. Beyoncé is calling people to stand together, to take up some space and to dance, not fight or riot or even yell. She wants people arrayed together in our place, America, dancing. And I can't say this enough, these people in this video, they're not attacking anyone or even lunging toward anyone, they're not reaching for their waistband or brandishing a weapon, they're just taking up some space. The space that's denied to women and black people routinely by a sexist, racist culture. And that is what people are so scared of. Just black people not apologizing for being human and being American and being there.
4: You just might be a black Bill Gates in the making. I just might be a black.
1: The emotional climax of the video is a little boy dancing in front of a line of riot cops. The boy isn't going anywhere. He's just doing his moves. He's staying in his space, but he fills it up. And when the cops raise their hands, it's a mutual peace. It's not a surrender to an aggressor. It's a surrender simply to cohabitation, shared humanity. It's about this recognition that simply being black in America, simply owning your identity, isn't a threat to our social order. It's a reinforcement of our country. It builds America up. It makes us better and stronger and more beautiful. People saying simply, this is who I am. I matter. We matter. And look, I know straight white dude telling you how it is. I get it. But... Go listen to this song that Beyonce and Mike Will made it, made. Go watch this video that Melina Matsukas made. They're spectacular. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer's Julia Smith, production fellow at Maximum Fun is a body and expirello, production assistant Kristen Duenas. senior producer Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to maximumfun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It is a Roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, the hilarious comedian Asterios Kokonos, a MaximumFun.org favorite, stops by to talk about advertising and Super Bowl commercials. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember all great radio hosts have a signature
0: sign off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.